Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today I have as my guest, Michelle Clayman. Michelle R. Clayman is the Chief Investment Officer of New Amsterdam Partners, LLC. It's a firm she founded in 1986, and the firm offers large cap, and mid-cap investment strategies to institutional investors. She's a respected leader in the financial community and is a frequent commentator for CNBC, Bloomberg, and other prominent financial media. As well, she is an alumna of both Oxford University and Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, where she was the first woman to receive the school's Excellence in Leadership Award in 2008. She also was the major campaign donor of Stanford's Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research, appropriately named after her, given her leadership and generosity to her alma mater. Michelle is a strong supporter of women's causes, notably as the chair of the advisory council of the Clayman Institute at Stanford, but she is also a chair of the Girl Scouts of Greater New York. In 2018, she was also appointed to Stanford's board of trustees. She is also a member of the Dean's Council at the Harvard Divinity School, a board member of the Bard College Music Festival, and the president of the board at the Edgewood Club of Tivoli, New York, which is where we first met upstate New York. So welcome to The Caring Economy, Michelle Clayman. Thank you, Toby. So Michelle, we always like to start by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their journey, how they got where they got professionally, where you grew up, how you were raised, uh, maybe some pivots you made along the way. So give us a couple minute digest of Michelle Clayman's career life. So I was born in London, uh, Northwest London, and grew up there, and uh, I went to some great schools there, and then I went to Oxford, where I uh, got a degree in philosophy, politics, and economics, and I concentrated mainly on the philosophy and politics, but there's a story behind that, but it was partly because I thought I could always pick up some of the economics later. So out of Oxford, I joined Bank of America in London. I tell young people about my first job and their eyes just bug out of their heads. So my first job was spreading statements, which meant I got piles of physical annual reports and I had to copy numbers onto forms and crunch ratios by hand. But it meant that you really got to know what financial statements looked like. So Bank of America was a California bank back then. And as far as they were concerned, Stanford was the business school. So it was actually the only business school I applied to. I was arrogant. And luckily, they took me and I went there in 1977, graduated in 1979. And afterwards, I took a job with Solomon Brothers on Wall Street, Uh, Solomon Brothers was then known as like the meanest and growliest place on Wall Street. So I thought it'd be interesting to spend time there. I went through the infamous training program that was detailed in Liars Poker. And then I was asked to go in as the junior person in a quantitative equity research group where I built models and I wrote research papers. I was the person on the team who was sent around North America and Europe telling money managers or showing them how to use quantitative methods in their investment processes. During that 
journey, a light bulb went on and it was like, oh my gosh, I think I can do this better. So I was young, bold and foolish. And at the age of 32, started New Amsterdam Partners and the rest is history. I know from your bio that your mother played a very instrumental role in your education and your formation. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that and why you give her such credit. My mother was born in Germany and in 1933, my grandpa had this good sense to get everyone from Germany to London. So that meant that when World War II broke out, they were all, all naturalized citizens. Because of what was going on in Europe, my grandpa and grandma sent my mother and her younger sister to the U.S. because children under the age of 16 could be evacuated. My mother's oldest sister, uh, my aunt Helga, uh, was over 16, so she served in the Women's Royal Air Force. And she was actually the first British woman to save her life by parachute, uh, not intentionally. So my mother came to New York and stayed with an uncle and aunt and cousins. And because everyone in the U.S. went to college, when my mother and her younger sister were college age, of course, her uncle Jack sent her to college and she got a degree in mathematics, and she was amazed at the transformative power of education uh, because she saw how here people from modest backgrounds could become doctors and dentists and lawyers and so on. So after the war, uh, my aunt Lillian had met the man who had become her husband. So she married him, settled in the US. My mother went back to England, met my dad. And my mother insisted that my brother and I be educated. And so my brother and I are the only ones of UK first cousins to be university educated, whereas all of my US first cousins did go to university. You know, back then, had my mother stayed in England, probably her father would not have let her go to university. Uh, she had an adopted sister uh, who had come from Czechoslovakia and my grandpa said no to her to going to university. You know, in my day, it wasn't necessarily normal for girls to go to university or anyone to go to university. Far fewer people headed to higher education than in the US at the time. And a minuscule amount went to Oxford or Cambridge. But the school I went to in London was a big feeder school to Oxford and Cambridge. And of the 100 girls in each graduating class, 95 would go to university, which was unheard of at the time. This was in the late 60s, early 70s, and normally between 15 and 25 percent were sent to Oxford or Cambridge. I think if... My father had left school at 14, started work at 15, and he really, you know, thought that education was irrelevant. So had it not been for my mother, neither my brother nor I would have had the lives we've had. Fascinating. I also see how that's infused much of your, um, your career as well as your volunteerism. So gender is uh, at the core, it seems to me, in much of what you've decided in life. Let's stick with Stanford. When you showed up there in the 70s, even though it sounds like it was a little bit further along for women and inclusion in higher ed, you were certainly part of a minority there as a woman, no? 
Yeah, probably at that point, about 20% of my class were women. Now, if you look at the business school, I think it's about 45% are women, so a huge change. Actually, within the university this past year, in the undergraduate body, it's now 51% women. Um, I think first time ever that women have outnumbered men. Um, so it was different. Um, but I was determined, as were many of my classmates, and I have to say, remember, it was California, and everyone was nice. It was a very welcoming environment. Yeah, it was the 70s, too. So it seems to me, when I read through your bio and what I know of you, that you kind of thrive as, I don't want to say underdog, but the minority, right? Like, to be the smaller representation of genders at Stanford or going into finance, like high-end finance, where it was so rough and tumble, you seem to have, I have visions of that little girl on Wall Street, the statue that faces down mm -hmm. the bowl. I, I see you as that young lady, but is that a fair assessment? And what gave you the chops or what gives you that sort of drive, do you think? Who? I don't know, but apparently I always had the drive. My mother tells a story, I was begging to go to school when I was three years old. And uh, so finally she let me go to a dance class and uh, the teacher said to all the children, okay, do a, be an animal. So most of the little girls were puppies and because I was the new kid, I went last. And I was like, no, I'll be a kitten. And this was at three years old. So I must've been pretty ornery even then. Well, maybe ornery, but, uh, but I would say, uh, not contrarian, but strong and confident is what you exude. And I won and I think wherever I've interacted with you, for example, the Edgewood Club, it's grounded. What you do is grounded in fact. It's grounded in, I believe, a moral compass that points north. How do you when you get in those stare downs, when you have to confront the 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 forces that are against you, uh, how do you do it? Do you use data or do you use savoir-faire or a little bit of all? How do you do it? Well, first I use the self-deprecating charm. Um, <laughs> so, you know, whenever I go in to see someone who might be defensive, uh, one of my tools is I go in wearing pink or peach. <laughs> and Stereotyping yourself. <laughs> Well, because you, uh, they might expect some horrible strident feminist who's going to yell at them. Um, and then people will often say, um, oh, you know, I'm very pro-women, I'm married. So <laughs> then what I will do is I'll reach forward and I'll pat them on the forearm and I'll say, oh, I know, I know. And then they relax. <laughs> And then uh, I s start using the data to make the argument. Yeah. And but you, if they have a brain by the end, they, they understand. And usually after the meeting, the feedback I get is, oh, Michelle is so nice. Do you describe yourself as a feminist? And uh, what's your definition of a feminist? Ooh, of course I'm a feminist. Um, you know, and I think it's sad that there were so many years when 
women retreated from that label and young women particularly. Um, it's about wanting equal opportunity for women and girls, you know, based on their abilities and interests. It's in no way negative towards men. It's just making sure that everyone has a fair shake. Mm -hmm. Well, I um, I know from the research I've done on the, the Clayman Institute and on you that you do ground things in data and mm -hmm. that you are about really advancement in the sort of in a in a, a noble sense would you tell us a little bit about the institute so it was founded in 74 as the center for research on women and the acronym was crow mm -hmm. and then uh, over the years it morphed into the institute for research on women and gender and the acronym was earwig so now they say they're very grateful that they're no longer Crow or Earwig, but they're Clayman. I got involved in the early 90s and saw that it had a lot of potential, but uh, it was incredibly resource starved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kept uh, talking to the university and was told, oh, this isn't a priority. Uh, but then I thought, okay, you know, let's play by the rules of the majority. So, you know, in the early 2000s, my business was doing extremely well. And I was like, okay, what the heck? Uh, let me just plonk down the money. Mm -hmm. And, oh my gosh, there's nothing that cheers up an institution so much as getting a large gift. Suddenly, you're treated very seriously. Yeah, including a board seat, I guess. <laughs> Well, that came became uh, later, yes. Yeah, and I don't mean to make light of it because obviously you do work hard as a trustee. I know you, you are that diligent person and an institution like Stanford is not going to suffer fools. So clearly <laughs> it was a smart move for them. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, if not the research of the Claim Institute, how would my average listener perhaps see how it ties back to their lives, their work, their what they read in the news or what they see in society? What kind of research gets manifested there? As you mentioned earlier, we're forward-looking and we're positive. You know, they're, they're, in the past, there have been times in the women's movement where everything has been doom and gloom. You know, our attitude is, okay, what can we do to make the world a better place? There is a podcast. Uh, there's Gender News, which you can sign up for, uh, which will give you snippets of what the Institute is working on and people can click through to get more. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we look at the last three directors, Londa Schiebinger focused on the history of science. She's doing a lot of work with the EU on uh, how science has often ignored issues relating to women. So you think about drug testing. For many years, drugs were not tested on women because, oh my gosh, our hormones fluctuate and that could mess up the, um, uh, the results. And uh, if you look at the de design of seatbelts, uh, they were for a tall man. And in particular, that might be dangerous for, say, a pregnant woman if she got into an accident. Immediately prior director, Shelley Carell, who's now leading the VMware Innovation Lab for Women's Leadership, so she concentrated on women's leadership and she did a lot of work on unconscious bias 
So things like in recruiting, I'm sure you've read about the resume studies and how mm -hmm. people uh, present themselves or perceived who, um, may determine what they get called for interview. They did a big study on performance evaluations and how that can negatively affect women. They're doing work at the moment on stretch assignments, and they're also looking at the attributes of men and women who get promoted into leadership positions. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that often with women being nice determines whether you get ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I'm saying that women shouldn't be nice. Everyone should be nice. Men should yeah. be nice. Women should be nice. Dogs should be nice. Cats should be nice. Um, but there are still these stereotypes that determine whether people get ahead. Now, the current director of the Institute is Adrian Daub, who's a brilliant man, German uh, by birth, comparative lit uh, professor and a professor of German studies. Focus at the moment is very much on issues around sexual violence, sexual harassment, sexual assault. You know, that seems to be the thing at the moment. And thank heavens with the Institute, the academics have always been ahead of their time uh, so that you know, then when it hit the headlines, they had data-driven information to present rather than just journalistic opinion. Here we are on election day, and I wonder if um, political campaigns tap into the research at the Clayman Institute. Would you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if they did. I mean, lots of people use the research because you know, I go around and I meet people and they're like, oh my gosh, we use uh, your research all the time. Uh, remember, it's, uh, we're on a university campus. Um, we can make controversial statements, but we uh, tend not to be overtly political. You know, here at the British Consulate, we've worked with Gina Davis and her institute for mm -hmm. gender. And I don't know that she coined the phrase, but what we often hear when we work with them is that she has to see it to be it. And you could say that of any sort of diverse group of people who are not, you know, who have been marginalized or don't have full access. So data can be spun. You would know better than I do, but still it tends to be neutral, I think. And so it's great to have your kind of research to be tapped into, whether you're a Gina Davis or a government or an employer. Ladies and gentlemen, today on The Caring Economy, I'm really happy to have my friend, Michelle Clayman. She is the founder and the chief investment officer of New Amsterdam Partners. She's also a trustee at Stanford University, her alma mater, and she is the chair of the advisory council for the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. Michelle, can you talk a little bit about data and quantitative exercises, you seem to be this polymathic woman who thrives in that. And I'm one of those people who's historically been a little bit phobic about data, whereas you've been thriving on it. How did you, what is it that draws you to it? And when did you realize, hmm, there's something there for me? Well, a lot of it was when I arrived on the Stanford campus back in 1977, because there... I, re I really took to computers. It was also the time that modern portfolio theory was coming about. Qualitative judgments is incredibly important, but it's easy to make superficial judgments. 
So that was why I thought, okay, how can you harness the power of data to actually elucidate some facts? You know, compared with 1977, the state of computers and uh, the state of databases has changed totally. Um, now we have these massive databases where you can use algorithms to get through enormous data sets and glean all kinds of insight. The important thing is to make sure that you use judgment uh, because as I'm sure you've seen, things like AI algorithms can be biased. You may not realize you're biasing it, uh, but those biases creep in. Uh, mm -hmm. So you always need to make sure that analysis is human-centered, is for the benefit of the world. You know, it's much better than to have data-driven analysis than like wild conspiracy theories. It's such a, a, a fraught topic now, right? Because there seem to be two versions of what truth is and no longer a level playing field. And yet, truth, data, don't lie. Do you have a sense on campus how the academy is reconciling all of this when there's such a debate about what's truth and what's not? Well, that's an interesting question. And I'm sure you remember that Winston Churchill said there were lies, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, and <laughs> you know, data can always be misused. The issue of truth is a huge one on campus. So there's the human-centered AI initiative. There's the ethics and technology initiative. There's the democracy project. Uh, so there are lots of people in many different departments and disciplines who are coming at this from uh, different angles. Certainly the undergraduates are being trained to look at data and facts with a jaundiced eye. You know, I'm sure you've seen these studies that show that lots of kids cannot uh, distinguish between fact and fiction on the internet. Not surprising when you look at how entertainment plays out today. Nothing is really just old school film of an action scene. It's digitally manipulated and these characters are from comic books, part human, part not. <laughs> and, it's, and that's before you even layer in other things, unfortunately, like, you know, Ritalin and ADHD and and all these other concerns these kids are dealing with it. Yes, but Toby, think back. I mean, you're younger than me, but think back to when we were growing up. Think about all the cowboy and Indian stuff that we saw. Mm -hmm. We were manipulated by that. Good point. Very good point. But it seems to be more elevated now because the technology allows it to be. Um, it seems more concentrated. Maybe not. You know, maybe to your point, film studios had monopolies back then. But I take your point, this is not a new phenomenon, but trying to understand it and either regulate it or work with it or raise a child with it is, I think, more complicated now than perhaps historically. Did you choose the East Coast over the West Coast because of lifestyle or just because of the job? And do you see a cultural, a significant cultural difference between the Bay Area, which I have to believe is the case, and the East Coast, particularly with the tech influence? You know, when I was in California, there are an awful lot of hot tubs, um, hallucinatory things, and strange personal growth movements. So I thought, hmm, you know, better 
get out of that environment, <laughs> even though it was oddly seductive. <laughs> and initially I thought that I would head back to England, but I took a job in New York, which I thought would be a two year stint. And, you know, 40 odd plus years later, I'm still here. I also realized that I could not have had the career that I've had, had I gone back to England. And it was interesting, uh, a couple of months back, I was reading Indra Nui's uh, biography. She was the CEO of Pepsi. And she describes going to a lunch at Chequers, the uh, British prime minister's house. He asked her, well, when you left India, why on earth uh, did you not come to England? Why did you go to the US? And she said to him, well, if I'd gone to the UK, I would never be sitting here today. Yeah, there is a difference between California and the East Coast. So Silicon Valley was still in its nascent state when I was there in the late 70s. Now, obviously, it's huge. It permeates everything. And it's fascinating to look at, you know, initially, um, a lot of these firms started with noble goals, do no evil, allow everyone to communicate with each other. I'm encouraged that I would say the current generation under 40 is, again, more altruistic. I see a lot of young people wanting to solve big social issues. I love what you've said a couple of times this afternoon around human-centered missions and the uh, for the benefit of society. And I, with this podcast, I'd like to think with my life and my work, uh, as well as my volunteerism, that I'm trying to do that, which is why I'm so inspired by peers or friends like you. So let's talk briefly about your volunteerism, uh, starting with the, the Girl Scouts of Greater New York. Uh, what an amazing opportunity for them to have you on their board. Uh, what brought you in there? When I moved to New York in 1979, I, I felt very dissociated from real life because I was working on Wall Street and I was living on the Upper East Side. And back then that was where the uppies all lived. And I was going out five nights a week. And at a friend's brunch, I met a friend of hers who had a Girl Scout troop and needed an assistant leader. So I was like, I'll do that. I did that for 17 years in Gramercy Park. I had juniors and cadets. So these were girls probably between about 10 and 14. And it was very interesting because Gramercy Park was an, is an unusual part of the city. So my troop was ethnically mixed. It was socioeconomically mixed. So uh, it was educationally mixed. Uh, some of the girls went to the Catholic church that our troop met in. Some went to the local public school, which was a very good one. And some were in independent schools. And some kids lived in public housing, some lived in old-fashioned middle-class housing in Peter Cooper and Stuyvesant. If you can go into a church basement and persuade a group of nine-year-olds to get on board with something, then you have no problem dealing with 50-year-old guys. <laughs> Solomon was very supportive of it, um, and uh, they actually, I had a full-page spread in Institutional Magazine uh, investor magazine of me and my Girl Scout uniform selling cookies on the Solomon Brothers trading floor. Oh, wow. uh, that was when the uniforms were designed by Bill Blass. <laughs> and 
And I was honored, I think in 2009. And then uh, subsequently, some years subsequently, they invited me onto the board. Now, interestingly, at the moment, I'm helping out as a co-leader of a virtual troupe um, of high school girls. Um, these are girls from Brooklyn and the Bronx, um, mainly from communities of color. It's a very different experience uh, because, you know, a lot of stuff is done virtually. I love that. It's, again, consistent with the human-centered missions of different organizations. What's your sense of civic engagement today? Well, yeah, it's no longer the case where kids study civics in school. However, at Stanford University, there's a new first-year program that all students go through essentially on civics. Mm -hmm. uh, first, it's like, how are you going to plan your college career? Then what does it mean to be a member of your community, your university community, the community, say, around the university, the country? And then what does it mean to be a global citizen? The university realized the lack of civics training. And then in Girl Scouts, there the program has really beefed up the amount of attention placed on physics. So we uh, did in the troop the voter promoter badge. And one of the assignments was for the girls to sign up 10 new people, get them to register to vote. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> the last question is about pearls of wisdom. You've given so many already today, but what, what do you say to the young Stanford students? What do you say to older citizens who may have been laid off or disrupted in their careers? What, what sort of advice do you have for finding or pursuing one's career and being fruitful? With young people, it's tr try and find something that you're interested in now. But at the same time, you have to be very careful about this whole mantra of follow your passion because you also have to live. So you have to be able to buy groceries and pay the rent. So think through the ramifications, but you know, don't go into drudgery just because it's going to pay you lots of money, but don't do something just for the money, you know, do something that really engages you because you're going to be doing it for 30, 40 years for most of your waking hours. Old people be imaginative. So my brother is an interesting case. So he found himself out of a job before he turned 50 and he retooled himself. He became a translator and he, he was always good at languages. And because he'd spent some time in business, um, he developed uh, a specialty in financial and business translation. So he translates marketing brochures, he does SEC filings, you know, because most translators, they'd far rather translate the poems of Baudelaire, but, you know, those quarterly earnings have to be translated. So it showed how sometimes you just have to be imaginative. It's not always joyful, but it does pay the bills and it clearly helps get where you want to get or where you're meant to be. I do think that elbow grease is important. I think mm -hmm. that it's important to sometimes do things that you wouldn't make your first choice of things to do, but that's where you learn to both engage with people and do things that are not always so much fun, but they will make you a stronger candidate for a job. 
Michelle, you have to come back. I want to talk about ESG and BARD and other things. But <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, today, I just want to thank my friend, Michelle Clayman. She is the founder and chief investment officer at New Amsterdam Partners. She's a trustee of the very celebrated Stanford University, her alma mater, one of her alma maters. And she is the chair of the advisory council for the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford Universities. I would encourage all of my listeners, but particularly my younger female listeners, to check out their website and see. There is great research and opportunities out there in the world for you, and it's a place that you should know about. So, Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you, Toby. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at TUsnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.